You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. I'm delighted to be joined this week by two legends of the LRB who need no introduction, contributing editor Colm Tobin and editor-at-large Andrew O'Hagan. Hello, Andy and Colm, and thank you so much for coming. Hi, Malin. Hi. Our conversation today marks the publication of the 12th LRB collection of pieces from our archive, and this time the theme is siblings. The collection is called Sisters Come Second, and it features writing by Colm, Andy, Terry Castle, Stanley Cavell and Penelope Fitzgerald, among others. Andy and Colm are joining me today in their capacity both as contributors to the book, Colm with a piece about Thomas Mann and his brother Heinrich, Andy with a piece about his own childhood in Glasgow, and also as writers who in various ways have engaged with siblinghood in their own work. So I think let's just jump into it. And Colm, let me just start by asking you about two biographical novels that you've written, um, The Master, which is about Henry James, and The Magician, which is about Thomas Mann. So both of these literary figures happen to be the second of five siblings, the second son of five siblings. In fact, you yourself are also the second son of five siblings. And both of them had an older brother who was also a successful writer and with whom your protagonists had variously kind of vexed relationships. So I guess I want to start by asking why were you drawn to these two second sons and writers? And do you see any similarities or affinities between James and Mann and indeed yourself? It marks you for life if you're the second son in a family of five and if your older brother is athletic. As, as, as was the case with William James um, in relation to Henry and Heinrich Mann in relation to Thomas. In other words, that Henry and Thomas were much gentler, more bookish figures. They were happier with their mother in the kitchen, as it were, where their brothers were outside um, knocking down fences and their brother's sexuality was completely secure. In And then the younger brother's sexuality, as they grew older, became more and more, as, as it were, ambiguous. So um, this is a really interesting subject because then you have a drama in your novel that will go on for life. In other words, the, the, every so often, if you're writing a novel about Henry James, you can bring in the tussle between himself and William. And it will always work. You know, Henry's about to get a lease on Lamb House, gets a letter from William saying, I don't think you should do this. And Henry gets immediately hurt um, in, in the same way. Um, Heinrich Mann is a much more political figure. He's a socialist. He's a pacifist towards the end of the First World War. Whereas Thomas Mann is always wavering and strange. He has no real politics. And in a way that no real politics gives him a sort of power as he becomes an opponent of Hitler. It's not from an ideological perspective necessarily. And it gives him, he's also becoming a best-selling writer in America. So when Heinrich, his brother, older brother, goes to America, um, he doesn't he doesn't make it there. I mean, he, he gets a one-year contract and then depends on his younger brother for his income. So, so you have a lifetime struggle going on between these two, these, these siblings, which if you're writing a novel, just gives you a sort of energy that you can use all the time, that, that, it, that if there were only children, it would not be as powerful the sort of drama you can get. But of course, the, the instinct is always to create an only child. I mean, when Thomas Mann wrote his first novel and created a self-portrait, a portrait of his, of his parents and then of the next generation, his generation, he made himself Hanno, the only child in Buddenbrooks. And he got rid of his older brother, Heinrich, his two sisters, his younger brother, Victor. It was just him. All the attention was on him. All the light was on him. And so too, Henry James in a novel like Washington Square, Catherine Sloper, it really depends on her being an only child in that house. And the only child makes her vulnerable in some way to her, to, to, to her father's bullying, but also gives her a sort of power in the house that she is alone in the rooms. She begins to sort of dominate the space. And so a game goes on 
in the work of those two writers between who they were in the family and what they created in their fiction. I'm getting the sense that there's something quite emotional about these creations of only children from this vantage point of siblinged authorship. And I wonder if you think that there's something slightly therapeutic about the writing here. I mean, is there, is it purely an emotional exercise or is there also maybe a literary reason to adopt a different vantage point when you're looking at a family? Well, therapeutic in the sense that the, these characters are usually fighting for their lives, fighting for their existence, uh, for a freedom of self-invention, as I mentioned, quoting Colin, but also um, for the right to breathe as a writer which you become convinced is different from ordinary breath, to be writing sentences or to be a poet, um, you know, thinking of stanzas, uh, of Cesare, of, of the acoustics of experience. Um, it marks you off in a particular way and not only as a success. And that's one of the difficulties that comes with this territory. Writers um, in families are often thought as the successful one, the one with the power to describe, to evoke, to conclude about the family. But as Evelyn Waugh put it rather succinctly, when a writer's born into a family, the family is finished in some sense. What's it like for the others? I mean, it's, it's hard to conjure with, Colm, but when you think about it, I mean, no coward had brothers. You know, what would it be like exactly to be Eric Coward, who died at 28 in Ceylon, always having to deal with the business of being nothing in life so much as no coward's brother. And that, I think, when it comes to the area of siblings, especially in a writerly context, or a context where writers exist, is hugely fascinating. Yeah, I think it's also clear that writing fiction is really quite a silly thing to do. You know, that, in other words, um, Henry James's sister-in-law referred to him as poor, silly Uncle Harry. You know, that his older brother, William James, wrote philosophy, psychology, he gave lectures. Whereas poor, silly Uncle Harry was making up these things in London. And so I think you're back to the basic thing of a five-year-old lying in bed thinking, what if it was just me? I would get more chocolate. I would get more attention. And that writing a novel, is you're almost back to that primitive business of, you know, imagine if I was the Virgin Mary, what would I say? Or, or particularly imagine if I was in a different family. You know, I mean, the particular one being, imagine if I was one of the royal family, what would I be really like? Then I would really be myself if I could be a member of the royal family. Or in the case of Henry James, imagining if I was a woman, what would it be like if I was to come into a room, if I was a woman? And of course, the first thing he must do with Isabel Archer saying Portrait of a Lady is separate her from her sisters and make sure her sisters don't get a look into the book. Because he's, you know, he's watched the Jane Austen problem with sisters, which is really, I think the big problem with sisters comes in Jane Austen, um, even in something like Persuasion, where Anne Elliot has so desperately to get away from her sister, to not be her sister is actually part of the life of the novel, is Anne Elliot not being her sister. So too, in Pride and Prejudice, the two eldest girls are not silly Lydia or, you know, that, that they are apart from the others so that you get these siblings and you make them into two groups. And that, in a, in a way, is the child lying in bed thinking, what if I could just get the others and lock them in a room or have everyone insult them or have one of them run away with a soldier so that everyone blames her? Well, I would be the sensible one, the good one, and, and I would, you know, be rewarded with um, love and marriage, which is what, I, as a five-year-old, I really want. I wonder then, in that case, 
how parents come into it as well, because um, the last essay in the book is is by Adam Phillips. And actually, most of the pieces in this book are about literary sets of siblings. But this last piece by Adam Phillips is really just a kind of an analytic discussion about what siblinghood means. And one of the things that he says, um, which is something that you've touched on talking about this idea of imaginative outbursts that children have about their siblings. One of the things that Adam Phillips says is that siblings experience unequal distributions of their parents' wealth, both emotional and material, and have to do something with with and about the experience. So I'm wondering, you know, because also many kind of novelistic or literary excursions begin with the removal of parents as well, of orphan children. And I wonder whether there's a relationship here between sibling relationships and parent relationships and whether you think that all sibling relationships are just an attempt to wrest the parents' attention or love from a rival. I mean, in Freudian terms, the family romance is so compelling and such a whirlpool of unknowability that even without siblings, you're caught in an incredible marketplace of ideas about ownership, about individuality, about belonging, once you throw siblings into that pot, it becomes about who's the real parent to some extent. For writers, very often, if you look at the Brontes, if you look at Virginia Woolf and a relationship with her family, it's often about who's the real parent in the absence of the parents. This comes up again and again in a way that I think enriches novels. You stand there at the centre of these siblings asking yourself, um, if by describing this, if by visiting this, I'm taking ownership of it, have I actually cancelled my parents and taken up the position of leader among my siblings? And they will tell you that themselves. Most often when you get it wrong or when you go too far, they don't want to be described necessarily by the writer in the family. That's something that has come up in the LRB and essays again and again over the decades. But it seems to me that the thing about parenting is that a child is either a rival or a successor. And we, as, as it were, the parented, are always trying to work out which we are. Is it the successor or are we a rival to the parents constantly? And these things, I think... Um, become performative for writers when they reach through their imagination, not only into their lives, but into the lives of their characters. They're often animating these things. I mean, I, mean, I think it is fascinating, the, the sibling business where one becomes the writer and the other the painter, which happens, say, with W.B. Yeats and Jack Yeats, which happens with Virginia Woolf and Vanessa. Yes. And it seems to me that that's a, that's, a, that's a much easier relationship that um, because there was such a distance in age between Jack Yates and WB, but they, but, but they actually weren't pursuing the same goal. They weren't rivals. It wasn't that one was silly and the other not, that, that they were both in, in, in a way concerned with art, but the rivalry is missing. But in the, in the two that become writers, I think the rivalry is there and, and there is something intense in the rivalry. Do you think that explains, Colm, the, the relative friendship or friendliness between William and Henry James, the, the support system that they managed to, to make work between them is that they weren't after the same material. They weren't in competition for the family gold, as it were. Um, Yes, but I think that William never stopped really um, patronising um, Henry for, for not being able to make the right decisions. And there's also the small matter. I mean, let's not call it homosexuality here, but childlessness. I mean, there's a funny um, thing about childlessness in fiction and indeed in, the, in writers. Not having your own children makes you 
a permanent child that that William can talk about the responsibilities of his family. There's another child coming to when the child has been sick. You know, like he ha- he is a full part of familias. He has he has lived a full life. Whereas silly Uncle Harry is still in London. He's living in these apartments. He might buy a house, but he can be bullied. And while they are very close, and they the correspondence between them is 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 I suppose it's amazing to say they really are exercised by the very same things. Nonetheless, the older to younger brother remains one where the older brother patronizes and the older brother's sexuality is secure and the older brother's sentences are more readable. And the whole idea of Henry James, his late style, there is a sense of William wants to make clear to it, to him, that he sees it as a feminization of himself. He sees it as not a manly American way to write. And do you think that sibling relationship manifests in Henry James's case in the short stories, especially those classic, wonderful short stories, which often feature a child, often feature a child or children. And just this notion of being dominated one by the other, does that come up? It does to some extent, but what's much more there, in fact, is the domination by a father of a daughter or the, the, the extraordinary and tricky relationship. For example, The Wings of the Dove very much depends on Adam Verver being A, a widower, B, having a single child who's Maggie, who, and the two of them can operate as one. But, but, but the sense of him controlling her or him or her seeking to please him, please daddy all the time, which is another version of the Catherine Sloper in Washington Square to Dr. Sloper business. But yes, he does have, uh, Henry James does have these very, um, innocent children um, who are almost being corrupted by adults and, and, they're, and, and, and in a way that they're, they're isolated. And in, in, for example, the turn of the screw or in the short story, the pupil, the short story, the, um, the author of Beltrafio, and, and indeed in what Maisie knew that, you know, that, that all of these children are actually unparented, strangely isolated, moving apart in a landscape in danger. And um, I mean, there is a sense in the turn of the screw that that, that Miles and Flora are one, that there's a sense of them, yes. as, uh, even though they do different things, and one's a boy, one's a girl, that they're sort of united in, in opposition to the governess. And, and, there, and there, is a, there is a sense of them, you know, that, that, that you can get in the Bronte sometimes of that, that, that idea of siblings being there forever, sort of bonded yeah, in a way that, that, that neither God nor man can tear asunder. I mean, I don't want to dodge the autobiographical imperative here, Marlon, because we started by talking about how we, in fact, are from big families. And I have to say that it has been a constant gift in my mind, the sense of having older brothers to play with in your mind, you know, to, 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 to consort with, to, uh, to deal with. Um, although Colm's right when he says that there's a, a fantasy, I think, in the mind of many novelists, perhaps even most, that we are only children. When, in fact, you're conscious that you aren't, it kind of opens up society to you, the first unit of society, I would suggest, that you become a social being, especially as the youngest child among older brothers who are full of, you know, flaring example, you know, the records that I would hear coming from my brother's bedroom when I had David Bowie and Roxy Music pouring down the hall and I was in a room without a record player, you know, full of children's soft toys. There was a sense of society out there beyond the hall and it was them. 
the brothers. I, yeah, that's, I think that's great. Um, I'm also the fourth child, you know, so, so, so you get that idea. How do I know the cascade singing, listen to the rhythm of the falling rain? Because one of my older sisters bought that single, brought it home and played it incessantly. I was listening to it, you know, when it was out of, when it wasn't my generation's song. And similarly, because my older brother was involved in sport, I have a sense of what hurling, which is the national game in Ireland, is like, even though I never played it myself. In, in other words, you, you get to live in a 10-year period before your own in a much more intense way than you would with your parents' lives that, that are further distant. And you also, of course, get, which I think is the most important part here. If you're the youngest of, say, in, in a family of four or five, you get, if you don't say something interesting, someone's going to shut you up. And so you learn from some age, quite young, two or three. If you're running in to say, guess what happened? A dog has run after a cat. They always just say, would you shut up and go away? But if you said a dog has eaten a cat, then everyone would listen to you. So you learn very quickly. That if you're boring, you, you just get stopped. It makes you very good at inventing things. It, it doesn't, it never made me good at being silent. It made me good at trying to find the thing. If I said it, I would get the full attention of the older siblings. It's absolutely true that. And it's that there's an extension of that, perhaps, or a cousin to this, which is uh, the working class dinner table. You know, I know what it's very different at middle class dinner tables where people are expected to leave something on the plate. But in Glasgow in the 1970s, your mother would tell you very directly, if you don't eat that, one of your brothers will immediately. And they would stick their hand onto your plate. You know, if there was cakes, they would stick their finger all the way down to the knuckle in the Friday cakes before they'd even finished their main course. You know, the relationships were all about, um, as Colm just said, you know, if you don't perform, you're going to be outperformed immediately. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a scene where, you know, there was only a certain amount of jelly and custard. And I felt my younger brother had got more than I had. And everybody was on his side. And no one wanted to hear me on the subject again. So I got my jelly and custard and I just poured it in on top of his. Said, he can have it all then. And my mother just looked at me and said, there you are, cutting off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> and I said, what? Hold on, hold on. What did you just say? Cutting off my nose to spite my face. And I have to say, it took me about two days wandering around thinking about Cutting off my what? And, uh, but it was a lesson. I never did it again. I mean, I never, I've, all my life I've tried never to pour all the jelly that's mine onto the other plate just to spite <laughs> myself or everybody else. Like I've known that that wouldn't work. I've never said, I'm taking my book home. You know, like you learn things like that. I mean, the basic, which if you're an only child, you really don't learn that jelly and custard rule. That's why it becomes so fascinating, I think, to us, almost at a national level, certainly now an international level, a situation where your elder sibling is always going to win. They're always going to be top. That's why the royal family is so fascinating to us in this collection that we're here talking about and celebrating today, a new collection from the LRB Sisters Come Second. There's a brilliant piece in there by Jenny Disky called It's Mummy, and it's about that relationship between Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, who would become queen and remain queen, uh, as we know, for a long, long time. And that's partly what the royal family are to us. They're a kind of uber family. Yeah, an archetypal family. You know, you look at them and you think, oh my God, that's, that, that's worse than the jelly and custard situation a bit, because she's always going to get the jelly and the custard Elizabeth, and if you're Margaret in that situation, well, how do you deal with that? What, what do you like? 
you light up a cigarette, what, you, you have a tumbler of whiskey, maybe the tumbler of whiskey starts earlier in the day, you make friends with Peter Sellers, you start to become a person that your sister can't be because she's queen. So you get to be in Soho at half past two in the morning with some loose people, whatever, you know. The royal family becomes a kind of incredible drama. I never understand why people just want to write them off and find them boring because they're too much to do with us for that to be possible. Yeah, I, I just should say that I'm in New York and um, I go out every so often and every night in recent weeks, the only topic of conversation has been Prince Harry and everyone has read found out all about the whole thing by reading Andrew Hagen's essay in the London Review of Books. And everyone agrees that despite the great history of the London Review of Books, despite its seriousness, its, its goodness on politics, on philosophy, on literary criticism, but the best, everyone agrees the best piece the paper has published in recent years is this piece on Prince Harry, <laughs> which has brought everybody into the story. Now, the question is this, how do you get it twice? where the older one becomes the responsible one, the good one, you know, who marries carefully, has the children, seems to be able to bow at the right moment, is all ready to sign the red boxes in front of them. How do you get that twice? How do, I mean, it's, it, the strangeness of this isn't just, you know, what fun Margaret was, you know, what a wretch she was, and just what, what her circle, all that was great. And Prince Harry, I mean, the transformation of Prince Harry from this sort of idiot child, this most articulate young man, how did... That, that's interesting. But the other one, how did you get in the family dynamic twice, one generation the next, a deeply responsible, very good person beside the wild younger one? I mean, if it had been the other way around, just think what a disaster it might have been for the Constitution and what fun it would have been for the rest of us. Well, what but about how, um, like, Edward and George, the parents? That... Yes, Edward and George show how much trouble it could be if it's the wrong way around. But the next two generations, can, can either of you explain that to me? I think sometimes we stage our, our family anxieties as political positions. And I think that's what Harry's doing. He's getting mixed up between what he feels about in terms of jealousy or competition with his brother. He's staging it in this post-woke society that, that, that we live in. He's staging it as almost an ideology that he is an abused person, that he is a victim. What in fact he is is a younger brother of a very powerful older brother who's going to get only more powerful. Yeah, to me, it seems totally deterministic. Like the reason that Elizabeth is the responsible one, the reason that William is the responsible one is because they are the oldest sibling and kind of nothing more than that, in my opinion. I think that's kind of, that's how they end up like that. You know, maybe if it was the other way around, they would have been the the irresponsible one. I mean, to get back to less serious topics, um, <laughs> what's fascinating to watch, um, because when we have two siblings who are writers, is to look at them in relation to their father. And we look, for example, in the case of Henry James, that Henry James Sr. was a tremendous talker and ditherer, and, and he couldn't settle down to anything, and he wanted to move house all the time, and he, he was never settled in anything, including religious belief. These two sons became great finishers, and we can watch them both in competition with the father, killing him off each time they put an end to an essay or a story. And we can watch the same with the Yates brothers, um, that the Jack Yates becomes a great finisher of paintings. His industry is astonishing. And W.B. Yeats, just think of those clanging ending for stanzas, the, the way the rhymes work, the sense of power and authority in his stanza making. And then you look at their father, their poor old father, John Butler Yeats, who couldn't finish a painting. He could do a little drawing. He worked at a self-portrait for 10 years. He was also a great talker and spender of other people's money. And uh, so that, so that it, you know, you're, what we're able to see, because we have two, is 
the, the sense of what children get from their parents, especially from their fathers, is, is a sense, I will do what he did not do. I will carry on. I think the most beautiful version of that is B.S. Naipaul, is that beautiful book of letters to his father, where they're both going to become young writers. And he's advising his father, his father's advising him, you have 500 words a day if you just do that. And of course, listening into this conversation is Shaiva Naipaul, his younger brother, who's still in Trinidad, when these letters are being sent and are coming back. And, and you watch the two sons, I mean, Shaiva died young, so he did, but, but still in his early career, you watch the two sons doing the things the father didn't get a chance to do. And so that, that I think, is a, is, is, a, is a really interesting example of two siblings at work to try and complete the thing that wasn't done in the first place by the generation that should have done it. And uh, I, mean, that's, I think that's another example of the, of the way in which siblings will actually work together while seeming to be in odd opposition. That you're actually, they're actually doing oddly the same thing in some very, in some very deep and serious way. That leads very nicely onto my next question, actually, because I think we've talked quite a lot about a slightly dystopian vision of siblings or a sibling, a vision of siblings who are often in rivalry or who are trying to imaginatively kill each other off in one way or another. But I wonder if, I mean, but some of the examples of siblinghood in this book, um, particularly Terry Castle's essay about Jane Austen and her sister Cassandra, and also to an extent the Brontes as well. And maybe it's also interesting that these are sister relationships. I wonder if if you think that particularly, but I wonder if if maybe you can talk a little bit about, about sibling relationships that seem to have produced not only strong affection, but also some form of creative fulfilment. Um, and actually, William James and Henry James, I mean, I think that that clearly is the case for them as well. Maybe a bit less so with the mans, but but yeah, I mean, I mean, can siblinghood sort of positively produce something that, that, that I, I lends think this itself is crucial. to, to I mean, Colm just hinted at it a second ago, that in fact there can be a joint project. And I'm not talking about necessarily two writers or two uh, artists in a family, even as in the uh, Jack and William Butler Yeats situation of having different vehicles for their talents. But even in an ordinary family, you're constantly collaborating. If there's any health in the relationship at all, you're constantly collaborating on a number of things. For example, on memory, on how to construct the past. What was our childhood like? And that's something you have to do together. And when your parents have gone, then there's an added sort of piquancy to that, that you're trying to piece together the thing that you can't turn to your mother or father and say, oh, in 1973, that Christmas, where there were no presents, can you tell us again what happened? You you build the picture with your as I say, not necessarily artistic brothers and sisters, but they're artistic in that moment, let me tell you. The moment where you're collaborating on building the past again together. It, there's other things that you do together that come with years. Um, you mount a funeral together. You bury your parents together. You have a way of uh, memorialising. I mentioned before remembering or creating memory, but also memorialising did we, in the end, come together at the crucial moment? Did we put a stone in our parents' graves together? Who phoned the insurance company? Who phoned the stonemason? This becomes absolutely crucial, I think, and is a kind of beauty. Um, I know it can also be, and perhaps more famously, the scene of great rivalries and contradictions, but there can also be that sharedness at the most profound level. I think Andrew's absolutely, I mean, this is a really good point, that you want to be an only child until you get into your 50s. And then you desperately need someone to phone 
at a certain moment who's going to phone who look I'll, I'll phone and then the that that business even if you don't speak about it the walking behind your parents coffin and they're being up the others with you and somehow or other you're back in the business of the unit and it doesn't really matter how much people remember or not remember that becomes i think i think a really important you know a really important moment um, there, was, there was one other point that I, that just since we were talking about the Jameses and, and the Mans and the Yeatses, they really crushed their sisters. And the crushing of those sisters is not ordinary. It is as though there's only a certain amount of power available in a, in a five member family. And someone takes some and someone gets left out of having it. Both of Thomas Mann's sisters committed suicide. Um, Alice James became this very eccentric figure who stayed in bed and, and, and I mean, really suffered from what we might call her nerves or from or, or from really from being with her brothers until she was 15 or 16 and then being forced into some sort of sort of domestic role that she was to get ready for marriage to run a household. But she was a very clever person. We know this from her diaries and we know this from her letters. And the cleverness actually went into a sort of neurosis. And in the case of the two Yates sisters, they they were left, Joyce called them two designing females. I mean, they were left to make little designs while, while their brothers became big artists. Neither of them married. They didn't like each other and they had to live together. And so, you know, we're watching these five women really suffer while, while the brothers were worried about you know, the length of time it took a ship to cross the Atlantic. So, you know, th that distribution of power. But I think Andrew is right that at, at crucial moments, if you've got the four Yeatses together, I mean, the four children, to, to talk about their father, they are, it is one voice in, should John Butler Yeats come home from America? Should he stop doing this? It, the, the four of them were together on that they were a unit, despite the fact that power was so strangely distributed. I th I'd just like to pick up on that point Colm just made about sisters. You know, this uh, new LRB anthology is called Sisters Come Second, deliberately. And that was so often the case. And I think complexly often became a pattern that was tumbled into the marriages also, that why, if the sisters be come second, wives came third. There was a sort of habit, uh, not only among writers' families, but among many families, of the brothers having the biggest shout, the first shout, and then the sisters somehow, uh, not just being marginalised, but becoming an important element in the building of the men's confidence, that the, the, as it were, the pushing the women away, the, the shrouding them in a notion of hysteria or second stringery. I give you the example of Dorothy Wordsworth. You have to have Dorothy, a uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, in order to be Wordsworth. You have to have a Jane Welsh Carlyle in order to be Carlyle. Of course, the first example, Dorothy, is a sister. The second is a wife. But there's hardly a cigarette paper you could insert between them in the terms of their experience. They were serving greatness and diminishing their own. Both of them were brilliant writers themselves. I think that that's something that um, could almost lend itself to another LRB anthology, another day, the wives or, you know, the spouse, uh, one way or another. In, in gay relationships, it's often the same. Somebody has to fail so the other can succeed. Yeah, you could put Leonard Wolf into that. But that is, I think, to go back to Terry Castle's um, piece on Jane Austen, that is what makes Jane Austen so interesting, that she didn't succumb to this. In other words, here she is, the unmarried sister. You know, and yet she seems to have a very good relationship with Cassandra. She's a very good relationship with her nieces, especially. 
And so from this vantage point where she doesn't have to go through childbirth, for example, which was so dangerous that she doesn't have to um, put up with a husband's, you know, hairy legs in bed, that that she, you know, that, that she's able to in, invent herself as sister, as aunt, and then as novelist. And that it, it, it she is in a sort of unique position in this way. How and do you know her... Cassandra didn't have hairy legs, Colin? Inside <laughs> info on this. <laughs> I think men have terrible hairy legs, really, and and and, and you know there, there should be more about that. But but it, but it also means, of course, that she's very good on, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, on those two older sisters. What what, what is Elizabeth and um, Jane. and yeah Jane? That 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 they're very different from each other, but they're also united, and, and that they move as one. And one of them is more intelligent and sharper than the other. But nonetheless, the softness of Jane sort of, you know, complements. So she was, she was able to describe this and then she was able to abandon it for other books. But it, but it just shows, I think, the, the, the extent of her genius in that there wasn't really anyone like her. That, that, that in order to do what she did, she had to really move out of a predetermined space of being the spinster aunt and the spinster sister and move into a much more powerful space, courtesy of her own imagination, but also a sort of will that must have been there. We've talked about imaginary only children or only children as a figment of the sibling's imagination as a kind of wish fulfilment. But I wonder, and so I wonder whether you think that on some level, an actual only only child is sort of deficient. I mean, where does the real only child come into all of this? I actually, one fact that I've always found really fascinating is that no American president has ever been an only child. Huh. Um, yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, some of them had step siblings, but mm-hmm. yeah, none of them grew up as an only child. Um, it's actually so, yeah. a fruitful area of inquiry, that American presidents. I mean, if you look at the Kennedys in relation to some of the things we've been talking about, not only the British royal family, but the question of the one in the family who was going to win and what happened to the sisters, to take up Colm's point. You know, what happened to those sisters is, I mean, you could do a 10 novel sequence on the Kennedy women. And as we speak, somebody probably is. Um, but also, what is it to be Jack Kennedy after the even more handsome and more accomplished and more heroic fighter pilot older brother died? And so even Jack, who seems so heroic to somebody like Robert, isn't quite in his own mind ever the full, the full picture. You know, he's not, he's not got the full collection of talents. I, I just love families like that who are constantly augmenting, increasing, magnifying and proving deficient the others. You know, and, and I mean that in a positive way. I mean, we, we could easily focus on the negatives and there were plenty in the Kennedys and plenty in the royal family and plenty in our own families, no doubt. But I think it's an utterly creative situation for writers, for painters, for filmmakers, but also just for ordinary living people. The richness involved in those sibling relationships. I mean, where does it end? Who's ever the winner? Was Robert Kennedy ever despite all his achievements and the brilliance the man had, was he ever not in the shadow of his brothers? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, at the moment, Joe Biden is in Ireland. And everyone, of course, is going back to the famous visit of President Kennedy in 96, June 1963 to Ireland. And what's interesting is he did not bring Jackie Kennedy. He brought his sisters. And somehow or other, going back to Ireland, where their great-great-grandfather had come from, they went back as a family. And now again, Joe Biden has come without Jill, but with his sister. 
And so, so once again, it's it's an idea somehow that no, no, this is our, this is our old country. We're not. I don't. I you know. I, we want to go back as a family unit. You know, bringing the president with his sister. It's an unusual thing for the president to bring his sister. But in in both cases, the American president with very strong Irish roots comes back. Um, to um, uh, incidentally, Joe Biden was asked um, a while ago if he thought he was Irish, and he said, "Oh yeah, I'm Irish. Although I don't drink and I don't have any relatives in jail." <laughs> I thought that was the best definition of being Irish <laughs> that I'd ever heard. I thought it was it cheered me up for a week. <laughs> well, in a way. You've slightly proven my point because, or at least you've answered my question to some degree, because I did begin by asking about only children and we've now spoken about the Kennedys, a large family of siblings again. But so I will return to the question of only children and ask, do you think that there's something or what do you think of the imaginative possibilities of being an only child? It might be quite hard to imagine as siblings yourself. I don't know if you'll allow this, Marlon, but there's a sense for some novelists in which you're the only child for all of them. If if you if you stick with me for a second, you know I've got three older brothers. I'm not saying I speak for all of them, but when I was writing Mayflies, it was it was and is endlessly talked about as a as an autobiographical novel. But the central character and narrator is an only child, and yet my family feel that it's an attempt by me to tell our story to hit on our period and our language and values and. Uh, uh, images that matter to us so much in our growing up, that's not to take on the egotistical responsibility or egotistically take on the responsibility of speaking for everyone. It's just recognising that sometimes the way you invent a voice on the page isn't, it isn't an act of separation necessarily. It's, it's, it's simply a manifestation of a narrative goal, a singularity of mind, Colm describes it in his introduction to this book, Sisters Come Second. What is it? I mean, I could even ask you, you're here, Colm. What is it about that business of wanting to be an only child? Is it egotistical or is it a framing device? I will, I, will, I think it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's best to do with nothing to share. And, and no one wants to share. I mean, we, we learn that as we get older, no one wants to share. I mean, people are forced to share and they get used to sharing. And they make a virtue out of it. But it's just the first thing is, no, no, hold on. I want all of that. No, you can only have half of it. And when another baby comes, no, you can just have one third of it. I mean, it's just it's just primitive hatred of having to share. And, uh, and then it becomes, of course, the bigger one. If you're Adam Phillips, it's all about love and attention. Is is my mother looking more, Is you know, as, as she holds the new baby? Is, does she love the more, more baby more than she loves me? And that's the most hurtful idea. That, 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 you know, you know, suddenly there's another one and she's looking. No, I want you to look at me. And in a way, that's the novelist saying, the little novelist in you saying, I'm going, I have a way of working this out. When I'm older, I'm going to be just me. And, you know, I'm going to sh um, shovel all my attention on a single protagonist who will be a version of me. And, uh, that's fascinating. And so, yeah. Isn't there, Marlon, isn't there a, a quote from Adam Phillips where he talk, talks about, Siblings being the birth of socialism or some sense. He's actually quoting from Joan Riviere, calling socialism the religion of younger siblings. And he talks about that for, you know, quite a while, trying to basically pass what she's saying and say, is she saying that, that socialism is, is the politics of desire? Like, is it the, is it the politics of unfairness? Well, well it's, a way, yes. it's a brilliant idea, I think, because there is a sense in which as, uh, a, as, as a younger person in a family or to go further uh, to be the an even invented only child that you think of yourself at least the character thinks of him or herself as being in the vanguard 
that you are pushing for change, that you are seizing the means of production in the family. It makes complete sense to me. Yeah, but I wonder if tax evasion is also the revenge of the younger children. You know, I'm saying, like, why should, why should, I, like, why should I give to others? You know, why don't I just have everything? And 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 there. So in other words, I think that there are two sorts of younger siblings: one who eventually learn the virtues of sharing and who realize we're all in this as a group, and the other one who just says this is. And and I think the first words a child learns internally, whether it's mommy or daddy outside, but is that's not fair. That's just not fair. That's not fair. You know, sending me to bed now is not fair. The other child getting a great, but I'm not getting one. It sounds to me, Colm, like you're preparing to be the official biographer of Prince Harry. <laughs> I think you've done that. I think you've done that. It's not I mean, fair. It's I not mean, fair. I mean, the idea of applying Winnicott to Prince Harry. I mean, I don't know what. Speaking of, speaking of, you know, how to kill a butterfly with a big like Winnicott. Poor old Harry is now going to have to read Winnicott. <laughs> I, I dare say he might have managed to avoid that. I think his shrink has been reading Winnie Carr. Hmm. Apparently, um, we learn, not apparently, it's there in the book, um, he hugged his shrink after the first session. I think there should be a conference or some sort of special issue of the LRB about people who hug their shrink after the first session or indeed hug their shrink ever. <laughs> they made Diana Arbus go to a shrink finally because she was just behaving so insanely. And she told the shrink who kept notes, and the notes are available to anyone who writes about the of Diana Arbus, that she was having sex with her brother, Howard Nemirov, the poet, the poet laureate, the most sort of, you know, formal poet and formal suits and formal tone, was, was actually having sex with his sister throughout their lives. Now, I have a theory about this, and I've written it, and, and a number of people who knew her agree with me that she made it up. That she she, was, she went to the shrink, she went to the shrink and, you know, you go to a shrink and you're completely bored. You're sitting there talking about your phobias and your nausea and your, your neurosis and all your husband and your daughter, all your things. And suddenly it comes to you, the bright idea. I'm having sex also, by the way, with my brother, Howard. <laughs> and the shrink goes, you're what? You're doing all that. Well, you're doing what? And the shrink takes notes and the notes survive in the university and uh, you can read them. But my belief is that she made that up. And I'm wondering if that happens much, if Adam Phillips would have much to say about it. Do people ever tell him real lies going on for session after session after session? Because that's one of the great sibling stories is how this, this photographer, you know, she gave him a photograph hard, um, Nimrod to her brother. It's now worth, I don't know, some vast amount of money. He just put it in a drawer and he let the corners go, you know, you know, curl, let the corners curl. So the photograph isn't usable anymore. Like he didn't, he he didn't, it, it wasn't as though she read his poetry and loved it and he loved her photography, but they were siblings. And um, that's what she told her shrink. So I don't know another example of that. Of Can, can you think of one of siblings who are both artists who had sex with each other. But see, I don't think they did. No, I don't think they did either. But I mean, you have given as a strong idea to pass on to Sam Kinchin-Smith, the series editor of these lovely LRB books, you know, perhaps a series of uh, writers writing about terrible lies they told their shrink uh, just because they were bored. I mean, I'd buy that instantly. Well, and in a way, the sibling is the first person who you conspire with to tell a lie. I mean, you know, that's something that um, Phillips mentions is that sibling relationships are conspiratorial. I love that, actually. I mean, my brothers and I bonded at a very, very young age over conspiring against our parents and telling each other huge lies, oh, which we did then maintain together. Yeah, um, Alice James was always told as a child that she was going to marry her brother, William. 
I mean, she really was like, and she, she was the only daughter. There were four boys. They teased her all the time. And one of the things they teased her about was that she was going to marry William. And she honestly did believe for certain years that it was all sorted and she was going to marry William. And of course, when William did marry, the wife was chosen for him by his parents who went to a party and met her, came home and said, William, we met the woman you're going to marry. What she's called, of course, she's called Alice. Who has the biggest breakdown when William gets married? His sister Alice has her biggest, loudest breakdown at the time of the wedding when he's marrying the other Alice. So, um, you know, this I, this idea of siblings and um, incest is something I, I don't think we've talked about enough. Well, having started with sibling rivalry, I think incest is probably the perfect note on which to end this episode. So thank you so much, Colm and Andy, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find Colm Tobin's piece about Thomas Mann, as well as Andrew O'Hagan's piece about Prince Harry, and many more examples of both of their writing, in the LRB archive at lrb.co.uk. Sisters Come Second, the 12th collection of pieces from the LRB archive, is on sale now and features writing by Colm, Andy, Anne Enright, Jenny Diskey, Adam Phillips and more, as well as a new introduction by Colm. You can find it on the LRB store at lrbstore.co.uk or in the LRB bookshop, the LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne, and the music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>